You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, I have a friend, a little girl. She's uh, early elementary. Her family and I uh, are friends. And she has a, a bone condition that's pretty devastating. She's had it her whole life. So ever since she was just a baby, she had really, really intense scoliosis multiple surgeries, but the thing about her and her development as a person is that it has happened from the beginning for as long as she can remember inside of a really cumbersome back brace. Uh, Hers is different than this one. This one's actually not too bad. Uh, Hers is this polymer plastic thing that gets all up under her shoulders and it just is super uncomfortable. She, so part of this condition is what, she, what you would call scoliosis. And if you don't know what scoliosis is, let me show you a picture of a healthy spine next to a scoliosis spine. Can you see that curved spine there on the left? Uh, this is a different person. Um, and what's possible with scoliosis is for that spine, this little boy, his spine was able to be straightened out through a variety of different therapies and surgeries and back brace, right? So, uh, so this is my friend's world. Just a kid trying to be a kid, trying to have a life, trying to be like every other normal kid, playing, running. She has spirit, she has heart, she has drive, and she makes the most of running and playing with this cumbersome back brace that's just constantly in the way, sweaty and no fun. Um, it's, a rough, it's a rough thing for her to experience, especially when she sees all these other kids running and jumping and playing without the hindrance of this condition and the back brace that comes with it. And so if she saw me wearing this back brace, she might at first think, oh, that's cool, solidarity. That's neat of you. But if I was like, hey, kiddo, I thought, you know, your back brace looked really cool. It looked actually like a really helpful tool for all of us. And so I thought I would just wear one all the time and experience the real life that you're experiencing with this back brace. What do you think she'd say to me? She'd say, brother, you're nuts. Get that thing off. I'm trying to get mine off. I've got a few more surgeries to go and some therapy and a whole bunch of things. And, you know, God willing, I'll get this thing off. Why on earth are you wearing that thing, right? So if, if, if I was with her, she'd be like, get it off of you and be the healthy person that your back allows you to be because this isn't necessary for you because your spine is straight, Why do I say all that? Well, because that's exactly what Paul is going to try to help us see today in our text. If you don't know, you walked into a series uh, where we've been moving through the book of Romans for a good long time. And uh, these last few weeks and the next few weeks, we'll be in a series, we're in a series called The Law of Love. And we're talking about Romans 12 through 15. And so we've been in it for a while. If you feel at all lost today, let me just encourage you to go back and listen to the earlier messages that will give you some context for what we're saying. But I would argue that what Paul's going to do for us today with this, with this text is uh, one of the most fundamentally important texts in the entire book of Romans. It's absolutely, I would argue, the backbone text of Romans 12 through 15. It's absolutely his core point. It's what the entire application of the book of Romans revolves around is what we're going to look at today. And what he's going to say is, look, if you think the law is the point, you've missed it. What the law is, is something designed to take all of us with our crooked, sinful backs, right, 
to, to be a framework to help straighten us out so that we could be really healthy and alive. We don't worship the brace. We don't fixate on the brace, but we absolutely understand the good of the brace as a means to the end of being truly alive and healthy. You follow? That's what he's going to get at today, and I'm excited. I'm excited about it. But two quick thoughts just to remind you of the big picture of the series and what we're trying to accomplish here. All right, the first thought is this, that the gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. The gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. Romans 12 through 15 is going to give us a picture of what it looks like when someone is transformed by the love of Christ. Not playing the game, not being religious, not wearing their brace and calling the brace good, but someone who has transformed, whose spine is straightened by the work of Jesus Christ to be truly alive. Okay, And the second thought is this. Paul's applications in this section may seem disorganized at first, but there's a purpose to his approach in Romans 12 to 15. All right, Paul applied the rule of gospel love to specific challenges that his original readers were facing and that we all face today. And this one is absolutely right in the bullseye of every breathing human's condition and need. So this passage is critical. But before we get into Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, that's where we'll be today. Before we get into that, I wanted to just take a minute and recognize that we're in a series called The Law of Love. We've been talking about love constantly for this is now the fourth week, but I don't think we've ever actually defined it. Have we defined the word, the word love? So what is love? Half the crowd's like, baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> the other half is like, what's he talking about? You're the better half. Don't worry. Uh, but what is it? What is gospel love? What is this really, right? Because the world's gonna tell us a lot of things and we all just kind of inherently know that what the world says love is, is whatever fills you up, whatever makes you feel like you're grounded, whatever gives you meaning, right? My cynical, even pre-Christ perspective on that garbage is that really what the world's trying to sell you is be a leech and find a leech to leech on. Suck the life out of that leech, and as soon as it stops giving you what you think you need, then go find another leech to leech. It's devastating. All right, so what is it really? You don't even need to be a believer. You could be in the room, don't know Jesus, don't know us, be cynical and critical about the church, and you know I'm right when I tell you that about the world's concept of love. Leech is leeching. So what is it? Well, I want to take you, before we get to Romans, I want to get, uh, uh, get you into a different text where Jesus, I think, really gives us a great frame of reference for love. It's certainly not the only text, maybe not even the best text, but one that God's used in my life a lot. And it's in John chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 9 and look at what Jesus says about love. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Live in my love. And this is what he says, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And those, that first phrase, you get a little excited, but as a modern, uh, you hear that second phrase, you're like, oh, religion. Do all the things, follow all the rules. Shape up, dress up, get your behavior right, and that's how you'll abide in my love. Please the father by following the rules, following the commandments. That's what it sounds like, what he, that's what it sounds like he's saying, but look at but he's not saying that at all, at all. Keep reading. Look at verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. What he's about to say produces joy, <laughs> like joy. 
What he said, the way I read what he said, didn't produce joy. But what he's about to say, he's saying, this is where your joy is going to come from. Look at what he says. This is my commandment. You want to love me? Follow my commandments. This is the commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. What about tattoos? And whether you boil a goat in its mother's milk in the sacrificial system. And I'm not trying to make light of those things. This is God's, God's law. That's something to be ruminated on. It's important stuff to understand if you want to be straight-spined, but he doesn't say anything about those things at all. He says, you want to abide in my love, then follow my commandments. Here's my commandment. Love each other. <laughs> That's what he says. Love each other the way I loved you. And now he's going to define love. On, he's going to help us craft and begin our definition of love. In verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You want to know what love is? You want to know where joy is found? You want to know what real living is? Lay down your life for other people. He means that in the fullest sense. His entire life was a process of continually, moment by moment, laying down his life, making others more important than himself, seeing himself as a conduit of blessing an expression of God's love to other people until he ultimately culminated that in his case with dying in our place on the cross for our sins so that we could have a relationship with God. And if you don't know what that means, let me beg you to understand that everything we're saying from here on out isn't gonna work for you. It's not gonna make sense for you until you come to terms with what it means to know Jesus Christ, to understand that I'm, in, I'm broken, I have a crooked spine in sin. No law, no brace is gonna solve that without the radical surgery of placing my faith in Christ and being transformed in my heart. So what I'm talking about is someone who has crossed that line. You've stepped into a relationship with Jesus, and that's who Jesus is talking to, right? You've stepped into a relationship with him, but how, you know, what does it mean to get a straight spine? What does it mean to be truly alive in that relationship with Christ? It's possible because of the work of Christ on the cross and because of the Holy Spirit for me to have a straight spine. What does it mean? It means to love people, to lay your life down for other people. So let me give you a working definition, my working definition of biblical gospel love. And I'm pulling this from a broad spectrum of scripture, not just this one, but I've never found a better definition, ever. If you find one, I'm not, it's not a competition. I'm just saying if you can refine this and make it more biblical and better, I invite you to please let me know because I've been working on this for a long time. But I heard this, I ripped this off of a, of a friend of mine in college. She threw this at me and I was like, oh my gosh, I think you nailed it. And so here's my definition of love. Gospel love is doing what is eternally best for someone else no matter the cost. Gospel love is doing what is eternally best for someone else no matter the cost. There's a lot of qualifiers in there to, to pick apart. We're not saying make them feel good, are we? Sometimes gospel love and doing what's eternally best is doing something that person does not enjoy. Telling them truth they don't want to hear. As much as giving them that hug and meeting that need. Gospel love is doing what is eternally best for someone else, no matter what it costs me to do. Laying down your life for another person. So with that in mind... I want to dive into our text. Now, in Romans chapter 13, like I said, in verses 8 through 14, I think this is the backbone, the crux of the whole application conversation. He's going to do it in two moves. He's going to tell us that love is the real law, in verses 8 through 10. And then he's going to tell us that love is the real life in 11 through 14. Those are the two moves we're going to unpack in the text. So let's dive in. Gospel love is the real law, verses 8 through 10. Let's read it. Owe nothing 
owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Can you get a whiff of Jesus there? Okay. So if I'm wrapping it up into a tight little bundle, gospel love is what the Old Testament law has been pointing to all along. Gospel love, the love Paul is trying to paint us a picture of, is what the Old Testament law has been pointing to all along. Why do I say that? Well, a couple, I'm going to give you four little subpoints here under that statement. All right, and the first is this, that once again we see that Paul framed his point with a key word, fulfill. And again, I'll tell you, if, if you don't know why I said once again, the last two weeks we've seen Paul do this exact thing in his literary style. He's given us these, 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 these ideas, this, this, this visual cue in, your, in the way that he writes to show us what he's doing. And so in this little portion of scripture, he's, he's doing something very similar. He, he's framing these verses with a key word, and the word is to fulfill. Let me show you on the text how that works. 13.8, you see it, and 13.10, you see it. 13.80 says, the one who loves one another, who loves another has fulfilled the law, and 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see that? It's just parallel. It's on purpose. He's not being repetitive. He's not, he doesn't, he's not like, hey, are you listening? He's, he's shown us that this is a critical thing to understand. The fulfillment of the law, the law is the brace. What fills that brace, when we know that the brace has done its job or when we know that we are healthy, you are filling out that framework nicely. You're not pressing against it, you know. You are, you're wearing it. You don't need to wear it anymore. You have fulfilled the law when you are loving other people the way that Jesus loved other people. This is a miraculous, heavy thing you don't get to do without the Spirit of God in you right, without transformation that comes from Christ. But it's possible, right? That's what he's saying. The law is fulfilled by love, not a rigorous, rudimentary fixation on all these details as though the details are the point. Okay, so what's he framing with this idea of fulfilled, to fulfill the law? Let's take a look at that. We'll say the same text again. At the core of it, what you'll see him doing in, in, in between verses, uh, the first verse and the last verse is he's going to list out some of the Ten Commandments, right? And he's going to say all of those, those four, ten command, four of the Ten Commandments he gives us are, are summed up, and, and then all of the law along with them are summed up by love your neighbor as yourself. So a little bit of background. If you're, if you're new to this or maybe you didn't really, uh, you've never really been exposed to the Ten Commandments and how that works, the idea here is that you have ten uh, commandments given by God. You know, Moses goes up on the mountain with, and, and God with the finger of God, which is such a wild image. The, the finger of God carves out these tablets and on these tablets etches 10 rules, 10 commandments, 10 laws, 10 frameworks for life, ten, the, 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 the stays in the brace, right? And the first few commandments have to do with loving God himself, right? You'll have no other God before me. You won't make a graven image or an idol and worship it. Right? These are the, you know, and then, and then he gets down into uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's about your relationship with God, being at rest like him and with him, right? And so the first few commandments are really focused on God. And so you could kind of have this image in your head, real rightly, that the first tablet of the two tablets has to do with loving God. 
That's what those commandments are driving you toward. The second tablet, the second set of commandments are all about how you relate to other people. Hey, if you love someone, you're probably not going to murder them. You're probably not going to lie to them, covet their wife. Right? That, that, so, so all of the remaining commandments have to do with loving other people. So, so, you know, you can rightly understand it as two tablets. One is about how you relate to God and the other is how you relate to people. What Paul's doing here is he's pulling four of the five commandments from the second tablet. I don't know why he picked four and it said all five. Maybe he didn't have enough room on his papyrus. I don't know. But, uh, um, but he picks four of these commandments and he lists them here. And they're all from that second tablet. And he says, the way to summarize those commandments, that tablet is love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. But he doesn't just talk about that tablet. Look what he says. You should, and any other commandment, these commandments and any other commandments. See, so any reader of his text understands there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's not just 10, there's 613 commandments. So what Paul's doing is he's saying these four from tablet two really encapsulate all, both tablets. And you know what? Let's just throw in all 603 extra on top of them. All of it, all of it, right? All of it, the sacrificial system, all of it is tied up and wrapped up. It's, it's this, it's one thing and it's singular goal, the product of all of those commandments, the point is that you would love people. That you would love people the way God does. <laughs> wow, right? How does he get away with that? How does he get away with that? It's been a couple thousand years at this point of established religion that every commandment matters of people walking around with their back braces on, adorning them. I got the Gucci back brace. You know, Christmas parties, they're wrapped in like the, the lights with the battery pack and do, 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 look at my brace because the brace is the point, right? Thousands of years of fixation and focus and our value is determined based on how many of these commandments we really get and I'm doing better with these commandments than you are, so get your act together, right? How does he get away with saying all of that is stupidity? Not the commandments, not the law, but this approach, all of that is insanity. It's all summed up, love each other, which is precisely what those kind of people struggle to do. So it's not shocking that those people are very confused when they run into Jesus because look what Jesus, look what Paul does with this, what he's doing. See, once again, Paul preached what Jesus taught. If you think he's innovating here, he's not. If you think Paul's taking Jesus' teaching, so many people accuse Paul of this because he tells them uncomfortable things. They say he took over Christianity and skewed it from what Jesus taught. And I'm like, I don't know where you get that because all he ever does is rip Jesus off and recirculate what Jesus is teaching. Let me show you. All right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke each have a story that all correlate. Whether it's three different guys and they're each telling a version of three different stories situations or if it's the same guy and they're looking at it from different angles, that's the whole synoptic question. We can have that conversation sometime. It's irrelevant to our point. They're all biblically true stories. And, and so what Paul's doing is I think he's looking at this situation and unpacking it. Look at Matthew uh, 22:35. a lawyer, a law person, a dude with a really big shiny one of these, right? 
comes up and asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He's trying to hook him, trying to get him to misspeak, trying to get him into a theological debate so he can ground and pound him and show that he's not really who he says he is, right? Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, tablet one. This is the greatest and first, this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, tablet two. Now, don't misread this, like I so often did, saying that, the great commandment, and then the second commandment. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the first and the second. He's equating them. All right? So the first great commandment is love God with all of who you are. And the second is love your neighbors yourself. Where's he getting this? Well, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, what every good Jewish commandment follower is going to understand as the primary commandment. Hear, O Israel, it's the Shema, it's the word for hear, listen. Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The Greeks in the New Testament add mind just because that's the translation of their culture. They want to make sure that you understand that that's included. All right? Love your Lord your God with all of who you are, tablet one. And then they reach over to Leviticus 19.18, which seems like it's just kind of in the middle of nowhere, but even they understood that that was a huge critical interpretation of tablet two, which is love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is like, what's the greatest commandment? This, love God, love people. Boom, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Leviticus 19, 18. Boom. Funny thing is, in Mark, he says the exact same thing, 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Scribe is another word for law person. Right? Right? Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, there's those Greek people, and with, and with all your strength. And the second is this, the second great commandment, the answer to what is the greatest commandment is both. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, Luke 10, 25. It's written slightly differently because maybe it was a different situation with the same theme or a different angle, a different look at the same situation. Guy walks up, says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Understand that is the same question in the Jewish mind as the previous two. What's the greatest commandment equals same question as how do I inherit eternal life? He's not asking a different question. Same question, different words. And Jesus, I love this because he actually spins it back to him. He says, well, you know the law. What's written in the law? And the guy answers the truth, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. You getting where I'm going? Paul's not telling us anything new at all. He's faithfully interpreting what Jesus clearly taught at the Old Testament law is a framework for helping people go from crooked to straight in their perspectives, values, and actions. You want to you really be truly alive? You want to live the way you're designed? You want to live rightly? You want to be in a whole unstrained, un, un, unshamed, fearless relationship with an infinite, impossible-to-know God? Stop living with a crooked spine and be somebody whose life would be perfectly comfortable in that and doesn't need that anymore. Love people. Love God, which equals loving people. Love people the way God does, and guess what? 
You're only doing that. You can only do that because of a relationship with God in which you truly love him. You follow? Okay. We're not just talking about behaviors. We're talking about alignment in our perspectives and our values inside out that drive our behaviors. Just because I wear a back brace that kind of holds me up so that my conduct is right, even though I have to work so hard and it's so unnatural and it runs so counter to the way my spine is actually aligned, doesn't mean I'm healthy. It's good stuff coming out, but I'm absolutely not healthy. So what the law has been pointing to all along is to try to grow us and press us and help us have a straight spine. See, the Old Testament law points to love but can never produce it. This does not produce help. It's part of the therapy, yes. But ask my friend how many surgeries she's needed to have in addition to this. How much radical change has to happen in her composition in alignment with that to get healthy. Galatians 3.24, Paul's making this point so hard in Galatians because we need it so bad that the law is a tutor. It's simply a tutor to lead us to Christ. It is not the point. The rules have never, ever been the point. The law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. And so if we need rules to do the right thing, then we still have healing to do. If I need consequences to keep me in line, then I am not in alignment with the heart of God and I have growing to do, I have healing to do. If I'm in my 60s and I've been faithfully attending church and I've been faithfully volunteering, but deep in my heart I still seethe in anger at my spouse, I still have healing to do, even though my externals are held up by the rules. I have life to discover. I have, I have so much more life to experience in Christ. Which is why I think Paul's next move is to talk about what real life is. See, love is the real law. That's the whole point. But the real life, love is also the real life. It's what we were designed to be, designed to experience, designed to share with God and with others. It's what, it's what we've been longing for when we're doom scrolling, trying to fill the void in our soul. This little garbage is what it's doing is it's trying to cover the fact that what you're really longing for is to be someone who has a straight spine, who genuinely loves and understands and experiences that the love of God, which flows out into love for other people. That's life. Like that's the real thing. That's what I'm after. And I think that's what you're all after. That's what we are all after. And Paul wants to give us a vision for that and a little bit of the how. How does a believer who knows Jesus, who's still kind of living like this with the back brace, get Straight spine. How do we do that? He said renewing of our mind earlier on, and that's really all he's trying to do through this whole application is to help us get a vision for real life and some of the mechanisms for how to get there as a believer. So let's look at 11 to 14, Romans 13, 11 to 14. is what he says. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, and not in quarreling or jealousy. See how he equates things that we typically want to put in different sin buckets? It's all brokenness and crooked spine. 
Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. See, this whole section is framed by a metaphor of nighttime versus daytime. Can you see how literarily he shifted from that fulfilled framework to a totally different point he's now making in the text? I'm not making it up. I'm not forcing this on the text. We're just following his lead. And what he's doing is he's tying this section together with a metaphor, an image of, of this point where we are transitioning from the darkness of night and the sun is just about to come up. There's that tickle of light on the horizon. And, and that's the frame of reference he wants us to have now in the conversation. You want to really live? You want to, you want to experience life in a straight spine? Like get into this mental moment with me real quick. And I want to give you an Im- image. That's what Paul's doing. And this is his image. Look at verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then as a result of that moment, act like it's that moment and cast off the works of darkness and put on the works of light. Take off your nasty bedclothes, right? That you don't want to be seen in and get dressed for the day. Get, make yourself presentable the way you really want to be in the daytime. When I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for 10 years in, in the Detroit area, and one of my favorite events was what we called Freshman Freakout. Uh, and what we did was every fall when we had a new crop of freshmen coming in from the middle school ministry, uh, we, would, we would do the same thing, but we would do it on a different Saturday in the fall. The freshmen never knew when it was coming because the word had gotten out. And what we did was we got permission from their parents And I'm shocked at how many parents gave us their permission. I think we had like a 98% participation rate. And we would say, hey, on a random Saturday in the fall, a car full of teenagers with one youth leader is gonna show up at your house at like three or four in the morning, like obscenely early, right? And we're gonna, with your permission, go into your freshman kid's bedroom, wrap them in their sheet, drag them out to the car, and we're all gonna converge at like a Denny's and have breakfast together. And we're gonna say, we love you. We want you as a part of this thing. Ha, 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 let's have fun, right? Whether that was really advisable or not, we can debate. But, <laughs> but, but we had a blast and it became this tradition, the freshmen freak out. And the freshmen, they were like, oh, they're kind of like half terrified, half loving it because you know, you, know, uh, you, you wanna be included. You wanna know people see you and, and they want you there. And so we would do the freshman freak out. And, uh, you know, one of the things we said to parents, though, was, hey, just be aware that whatever condition your kid is in, when we find him, they're going to be out in public. <laughs> so <laughs> however you can kind of weave that into the advice on that given Friday night for how late they stay out, what they get their noses into, imagine being that freshman and doing some really terrible, stupid things the night before. and your pastor and church people come in your room the next morning, I would say that's the moment Paul's trying to describe. Hey, it's freshman freakout season. And the point here, I don't think, is to get you scared. Like, oh no, if I'm caught out, I'm gonna get in trouble. I don't, for a believer, Jesus has taken your, the sacrifice for your sin. I think, I mean, just like freshman freakout, we're dragging you out of your room, we're surprising you to go celebrate and welcome you home. Welcome you to the high school youth group. Right? I think that's the image here. It's like, hey, time to put on the clothes that match and that fit the life that you say is what you want. To live it out in the open. And so don't wear, don't behave as though it's still dark out. So gospel love lives as though the lights are going to turn on at any second. Gospel love lives as though the lights are going to turn on at any second. 
And so what it does, it casts off the works of darkness and puts on the armor of light. It casts off the shame. See, see, there's only two things that grow in the dark that I'm aware of. One is mold. I rented a, uh, we rented early in our marriage a house that when we finally moved out and pulled some shelves away from the wall, we found some nasty mold that grew in that dark. And the other is sin. Sin is something that grows in the dark. It really struggles to grow in the light where everyone can see what's happening. Sin struggles to grow there. It grows in the dark. It grows in secret. It grows behind our justifications and all kinds of things. And, and, and so uh, gospel love casts off works of darkness and it puts on the armor of light. See, works of darkness are things we usually hide, minimize, or justify because we know they're wrong. Uh, and I think all three of those words are important. Uh, other than wrapping presents for your kids, which is a good thing to hide, right? And that sort of thing. Typically, when we are hiding, what we're hiding are our brokenness and our sin often. Insecurity, sure. But isn't insecurity rooted in a sinful, broken perspective on our value that fails to account for what the gospel tells us? When we are in hiding, when we're hiding and covering, that's works of darkness. One of the phrases I, I got a lot of mileage out of that somebody shared with me once is, is managing the narrative. When you find yourself, like I so often have in my life, trying to manage the narrative of a situation or a behavior or something I did in my past or my present, I want you to understand it, which means I have to explain the particulars so that you get it the way I want you to get it. What am I doing? darkness. What Paul's saying is, is that the works of darkness are those things that aren't plainly, obviously good to just any right-thinking person in any situation. So I know that I'm operating in a place of the works of darkness when I'm hiding, when I'm covering, when I'm trying to shift your attention to something else, or when I'm managing the narrative about my life and my behavior or my attitudes. Is it just me? Okay, you can relate to that because I think that's our condition naturally when we have the crooked spine. That's what works of darkness are. What's interesting, he says, put off those works of darkness. And the idea of put off, put on, it, it, the image, the, the literary image is take off those clothes, take that off, which means you can in Christ. It is not impossible. I have suffered with addiction. I know how how offensive it can sound for a guy up here to say that you can, but you can put off even addiction through work and time and the spirit of God. It can come off like so many clothes ultimately in Christ. It can. You put that off and then you put on, he calls it the, the works of the armor of light. So what's the armor of light? Well, I'm gonna say this. It includes the protection of openness and transparency. Why do I say it like that? The armor of light includes the protection of openness and transparency. Well, a couple things on this text. So when you heard the phrase, put on the armor of light, what did you think of if you grew up in the church? You probably thought of the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation. You went right to Ephesians chapter five and put, you know, put on the full armor of God, right? Because in the English, it's the same word. Well, it's a totally different Greek word here. He's actually saying the weapons, the weapons of light. And I don't think you're wrong to make that equation. In fact, there's about four other texts where he uses a very similar idea of like taking up 
the weapons of, the weapons of righteousness, I think he says in, in the, to the Corinthians. And in the Thessalonians, he, t- he says something very similar. So I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you and I would be wrong to kind of hear those, those other passages echoing in our minds. And so I don't think you're wrong to think about the full armor of God here. But he doesn't actually say that here. He simply says, in contrast to the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, or the weapons, plural, of light. 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 Put on light. Instead of living in the dark, hiding, put on light. Exposure. Openness. Transparency. Put that on and see what grows. You a little nervous yet? So I think that whatever he's saying, it absolutely includes this fact, that if you want to live the real life, if you want the joy that Jesus points us to, if you want a straight spine to take the brace off and not just do this, but to be able to operate without having to ask, what's the rule here? If you want to relate differently to your parents, your spouse, your coworkers, and God himself, it requires some light, some exposure, some openness, and some transparency in your life because the only things you're going to grow in the dark are mold and sin. The only things you're going to grow in our normal way of living is mold and sin. Brokenness, barriers to the very life that we really do want. So you need some light and some exposure. I want to just remind you that this whole text is in the context of an application that is all about the Christian community. How do we as a Christian community relate to one another and to our world together? And so even here, and especially here, Paul puts a finger right in our back-braced chest and says, you need healthy Christian relationships (laughs) if you want to be truly alive. And to define healthy Christian relationship has to include opening yourself up to at least a couple of people. Your budget, I just freak you right out. Your sin pattern, your past, your story, the hurt that you're trying to deal with that you, that's been caused by you and to you, your addiction. In Christ, it's covered. In Christ, shame has no place. Right? But you want to get free of this? You've got to invite some people in and allow some other people who have God's heart and God's spirit in them to triangulate and speak into and be his hands and feet and a frame of reference and a place and a foundation from which we continue to fight hard to put off those deeds of darkness that we all have. I have them. Can I just be the first to say I have deeds of darkness in my life? Present, continuous. It happens. It'll happen today, I'm sure. Is it just me? Can we all just get over that then? Now, in this room, I'm not going to tell you all of them. But I'm fighting hard to make sure there are some people in my life 
who even when I don't want to, have the permission and have taken the responsibility to dig in, but I'm not making it their fault if it doesn't happen. I'm continually challenging myself to bring things to people that I can trust who can help me work through my, my issues. So gospel love, final thing Paul says here is that it puts on Christ. It puts on Christ. That's not actually a new idea. All he's doing is summarizing everything he just said. It puts on the mind of Christ, Romans 12, 1 and 2, transformed by the renewing of your mind into the image of God, the image of Christ, living the way he lived. He's our living example. And we love how? The way he loved, by laying down his life for his friends. He's been our model. He's been our example. And he'll continue to be. And that's all Paul's saying over and over and over again. And, and this helps us get there, but it doesn't solve the problem. The rules won't fully get you there. You need to give your life to him in, and, and trust his sacrifice for your sins and be changed in, your, in, your, in the composition of your spirit. That's Romans 1 through 11, right? But having done that, then you enter into a process of sanctification. And, and, and if he's saying nothing else, what he's saying here is that requires light. You want to be truly alive? You want to stop hiding? You want to stop doom scrolling? You want to stop coping? You want to stop all the things you just wish you hadn't wasted your time doing? Invite some people in. Give them full access. And be that for other people. And you'll put on Christ, which is to say, real life. <laughs> you'll start living, man. You'll start living. Even on a nasty, snowy Sunday morning, you'll be fully alive more and more and more and more. You'll start living. So I want to show you one more thing before we wrap up uh, that's, I think, really crazy. I showed you those passages from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I kind of secretly left out the last statement in all three of them because I think it's really interesting. If you look at just the last statement in all three of them in sequence, you're going to see that, this, <laughs> this, that's, ex that that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. So let me just show you really quick. Mark 22:40. the last statement in that little story is on these two commandments, love God, love people, depend all the law and the prophets. Paul didn't make that up. Not just the Ten Commandments, the whole law and prophets, the entire Old Testament. You know, the writings in between. Summed up, love God, love people. That's Matthew twenty two forty. Look at Mark 12, 31. His last statement is this. There's no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. There's no singular commandment than, that's greater than love God, love people. Everything else serves that statement, those two statements. That's exactly what Paul's saying here. But I want you to see what Luke 10, 28, the way he finishes in parallel with them. His last word is, do this and you will live. Live. <laughs> for real, for real. That's the compelling vision. Not to earn God's love. You have it in Christ. So grow out of this and you will experience the life we're all longing for. I don't want to leave John out because he's awesome. Even though he doesn't tell the story, he basically says the same thing. Look at what Jesus says in John 17, 3. This is life. This is eternal life that starts when we accept Jesus Christ in this body, in this moment. It starts here and goes, boom, eternal in its size and its scope. What's possible right now and lasts forever. You understand eternal is not just a time word. It's a, it's a word of infinity. Infinite possibility in relating to Jesus starts at salvation and extends for all of time. This is eternal life. 
that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent, that they would put you on, that they would live the way you live and experience communion with you, loving people, loving the weirdos you're sitting next to and listening to up front. That's life. That's love. That's health. Love is the real law. Love is the real life. Love is Christ. God is love, John says, equal sign. Not an attribute, a part of his character. It's what he is. So what do we do with that? Well, I'm gonna give you four things to just take to a, I would, I mean, I'm begging you to, if you haven't yet, make some time with God consistent in your week some just you and him time. I call it devoting daily. And if you can't get to daily yet, you're still working toward it, just give me one day, give me one time. Give him, give yourself one time each week to just really sit down alone with Jesus. And if you do that, I wanna encourage you this week to spend some of that time asking yourself these questions. Do I believe that real love and real life, real life, depend on coming out of hiding and giving healthy people access to my life. It's a cute thing for Pastor Josh to say, but do I really buy it? I think the way you answer that question will have everything to do with how your 2024 goes as it relates to straightening out your spine. Do I really buy it? Second question I would ask is this, are there any works of darkness in my life that I need to bring to the light? That's dangerous business. We're not perfect. Emmanuel's not perfect. Whoever you pick for community isn't perfect and you might get hurt. But I'm telling you, how's it going? Being cloistered in the dark. How's that going for you? Are there any deeds of darkness growing in your life, who've taken root in your life that you need to bring to the light? Someone healthy who can speak into it. And it's such a ministry even just to be able to listen to someone. Third, do I have spiritually healthy people acting as lights in my life? What can I do to create or cultivate those relationships? And finally, what is your next faithful step? You can answer those questions all day with yeses and nos, but it will come down to what's the one concrete step you're gonna take to move in the right direction if you want to get out of this thing.